Good morning, Foothills Church. It's very good to be with you this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, if you haven't already opened, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5, the passage that Scott just read, and thank you for reading that, Scott. We're going to spend our time in that passage, and uh, I'd love for you to be able to kind of look along as we go through that. My name is Darren Fennell, and I am one of the elders here at Foothills Church, and Also, a recent addition to the staff, the latest addition as associate pastor. Yes, thank you. And uh, every once in a while, they let me out of my office and allow me to come up here and speak a little bit. So so it's my pleasure this morning to be able to uh, bring to you God's Word and to hopefully communicate what God has spoken to us and challenge us uh, from God's Word in terms of uh, how God would have us uh, change Uh, and live our lives in light of His Word. So, if you are in Matthew chapter 5, what I would like to do is actually read the last section of that passage once again, uh, just to kind of set the table for what we're going to be focusing on uh, today. And so we will primarily be looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And verse 13 says, You... Are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray one more time for us. Lord, your word is profound and and powerful and instructive. And we ask this morning, God, that uh, as we consider what you have said to us, that our hearts would be malleable that you would have your impact uh, in our lives, that we would not resist you, that we would not resist what you have said to us, but that we would uh, gladly surrender our wills to yours. Thank you for the words of Jesus who so profoundly taught his disciples and uh, today teaches us. We ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, in uh, March of 2022, some friends of mine and myself, we uh, took a trip down to the U.S. Virgin Islands, and uh, we, we rented a catamaran, and we went and we sailed from uh, island to island. It was a really, really enjoyable trip. Weather was great. It was, uh, it was a beautiful time. One of the things that uh, we had to do when we would come into one of the islands, though, is that you can either, in some locations, you can drop anchor. Uh, if it's not a protected ground, but in, in certain locations, uh, what they would have is, uh, are these things called moorings. And uh, if you're not familiar with moorings, uh, what a mooring is, it's, it's either a large concrete block that sits on the floor of the sea, and it allows you, with a chain that comes up and a buoy on top, it allows you to pull in and hook into uh, the buoy and uh, essentially moor your ship Uh, to the mooring, and it allows you uh, at this point to get up, to walk around, to go play cards, to watch a sunset, to enjoy time with each other, not worry about drifting away or drifting off into danger. That's the point of a mooring. A mooring is a very important uh, part of uh, sailing. And the picture that that brought to me is, as I think about our culture and the, the world that we live in today, our Our culture is unmoored. Uh, It has cut its ties with a Judeo-Christian worldview and specifically with the Word of God. And so it's no surprise that we are seeing some of the most unthinkable positions become mainstream. Our culture is unmoored from what it ought to be tied to. And so this, this culture, our world has lost its way in terms of its view of reality and its view of truth. It's lost its way in terms of what it celebrates and what it promotes. 
It's lost its way in, in terms of its overemphasis on the self as the supreme authority. It's lost its way in terms of total confusion about gender. It's lost its way in terms of its understanding and uh, the breakdown of the family. Our culture and our world is quite literally in a crisis of meaning. And you know what? It's interesting. One thing that I realized not too long ago is that we often hear these things that, that now are, are becoming mainstream, and, and we start to think, that's crazy. How could that be? That's crazy. This is crazy. And we keep hearing, this is insane. This is crazy. You know what? I've stopped saying that. <laughs> because it's logical. It is not crazy. It's not insane. When you unmoor yourself from the Word of God, when you unmoor yourself from what has traditionally rooted uh, our culture and our world in truth, all bets are off. There are no limits. There is no extent to which our culture and our world can go and will go and is going. It's not crazy. It's not insane. It's perfectly logical. Our culture and our world is unmoored. You know, the Scripture accurately speaks of man being lost. They're lost at sea. That's an accurate picture of our world. One thing I want to say also is that whether they know it or not, or whether you know it or not, the world needs the church. That's Jesus' point this morning in this passage. You are salt, you are light. The world needs the church. Now, the world thinks very little of the church. This is true. You know, because the the church may not be glamorous, the, the church may not appear as glamorous as the world, and admittedly so. Jesus says this, the Bible says this. You know, in fact, it was God's good pleasure that he would save the world through a crucified Savior. The weakness of God's plan is his power. So the world needs the church, but the world thinks very little of the church. And God was pleased through the foolishness of his plan to both shame, in some respects, but also save the world. God's plan is clear. The question is, are we clear on our part? And so as we see in this section of Scripture, Jesus says, you are salt and light. And the challenge for us this morning is that given what Jesus has said about us as individuals and us as the church, we ought to labor with our intensity and energy and effort to influence others more deeply and to shine more brightly before them as we remain in the world. So we're going to look at a few things. Number one, you are salt and light. Number two, you must be distinct from the world. However, number three, you must also be engaged with the world. And then finally, you must show the world the way. And so let's look at this passage once again. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now when he says you, there's a few things here that that we want to key in on. And you want to note about what Jesus means when he says you. What he says is that you, I don't want to give you that. There's a little preview. All right. Backing off. Uh, when he says you, what he means is you all. It's plural. It's in the plural. Yes, there is an individual sense in which he is saying you are the salt. You are the light. But he's also speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the church broadly. You plural. You collectively are the salt of the earth. Notice also that he says you are salt and light. It is a statement of identity, not an aspiration. He's not saying become salt, become light. He's saying this is what you are. I have made you this way. It's a statement of grace. He has brought us into his family and made us salt and light. He is therefore encouraging us to live in light of that. And then one other element of this idea of you 
is that it's in the emphatic. You are the salt of the earth. There is no other. Again, the world needs the church, even though the world may think very little of the church. You are God's plan. So there's a lot packed into what Jesus says when he says you. Now, what does he mean when he says you are salt? Now, uh, a, a few things, and this may not be you know, completely novel to you. I'm sure you've probably heard sermons on this before and have an understanding of how salt is used. Uh, but I think it, it bears reminding us of the importance and the reasoning why Jesus was using this analogy for us. There's a couple things I want to focus in on. Number one, salt is used to preserve. And I I find it quite interesting when you think about this process. What actually happens is that, you know, before refrigeration, uh, cultures and and, uh, individuals needed a way to preserve meat or it would spoil quickly. And so what they would do is they would take salt and they would pack it around the meat. And what happens is through this process called osmosis, I hate using like big words like that, but anyway, I'm sure you've heard osmosis before. Essentially, what it does is it draws out the moisture within the meat, um, thus, thus reducing an environment for the bacteria to grow in, making it a, more, uh, a less favorable environment for the bacteria to grow in. The salt extracts or it pulls out that moisture uh, and allows the, the meat to last longer because it's not corrupted by the bacteria. The other thing that it does is is it actually packs around the meat and creates a bit of a barrier between the meat and the oxygen, which also, as you know, carries all kinds of bacteria and things like that uh, in it. So what it does is it preserves the meat by shielding it from bacteria, which would lead to its decay. And this was very common in the first century. And so that would have been known to Jesus' listeners in terms of how salt was used. It was used as a preservative. In the same way, the church is used to hold back the decay of our culture. I want you to just imagine that if there was no counter to the things that we're seeing, if there was no pushback, how dark would our world be? It would be quite dark. Number two, salt is also used, no big surprise here, to flavor things. We know this. Um, It's a powerful seasoning. It's been used for thousands of years. Um, And salt adds to the flavor of the dish, and it makes it more uh, pleasant to eat. And we had Scott read the Beatitudes uh, earlier, and that's one one description of the kinds of individuals or the characteristic of the individual who belongs to the kingdom of God. Those who are within the church, the Beatitudes is a description of how we ought to be, of who we are, and the kinds of values that we as individuals and as a church uh, hold up. And if we are living up to that, you can bet that we will have a valuable impact in our culture in terms of providing flavor. Now, the world tends to look at the church and say, you guys are boring, you're, you're defined, you're known by what you don't do. Well, that's not true entirely. There are things that God says this is not allowable, and so we obey him in those. And yet there is a positive aspect that those who know God and who are moored to the mooring of God's word, are able to fight for things that are truly good, truly beautiful, and truly lovely. Those kinds of things the church can fight for because we understand that those things are from God. Now, you remove yourself from God's standard on those kinds of things, and anything goes, and, uh, you know, the example of there was a famous artist named Marcel Duchamp who made these things called ready-mades, and he basically took a urinal off of a bathroom and he, he wrote some things on it and he says, there, that's art. 
Okay. Um, is that truly good? Is that truly beautiful? Is there a sense in which aesthetics are rooted in the world that God has made? Or is it just a free-for-all? We get to decide whatever we want. Christians, the church says that, no, God made this world. He defines the aesthetic. And in some ways, you could say beauty is in the eye of the beholder to some extent. But there are things that are truly good. There are things that are truly beautiful. There are things that are truly true. Those are the things that God has called us to adhere to. And when we do, we provide flavor and beauty to this world. Jesus then goes on to say, How shall salt, if its saltiness is removed, how will it be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If we lose our saltiness, what will we be good for? If the church is no longer salty, if we don't have a preservative effect in this world, if we no longer flavor this world, what are we good for? Jesus says, you're good to be thrown out onto the trail and trampled underfoot. Let's not be that. Moving on in verse 14, Jesus also says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Again, the same things that were true of the you when he spoke of the church being salt, you collective, you plural, you only, these things are also true of you as the light of the world. There is no other. Jesus says that you are light. As we look to some other scriptures, Proverbs 4, 18 and 19 says that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. That word righteous is key. You are the light of the world. Does righteousness mark your life? Does, it, does righteousness mark the life of our church? Does righteousness mark the life of the church globally? If so, it's like the light of dawn, and it shines brighter and brighter. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Again, he's making a contrast here. He says, you don't hide a lamp. You don't put the light under a bushel. That's foolish. You light a lamp and you set it on a stand so that it can illuminate and dispel the darkness. But if the light of the church goes out, whether this world knows it or not, life will grow increasingly dark. This is just one example that I think about sometimes. You realize how fragile civilization is? I think we start to see that every once in a while. One thing that I think about, though, I just think about what happens if the garbage men go on strike for two weeks. It doesn't take long. You've got trash all in the streets. You've got the ravens that come down and pick into the trash bags. And then you have the wind pick up and blow the trash down the streets. It doesn't take long. If there is not a restraining order, if there is not light, it doesn't take long for civilization to break down. You are the light of the world. Don't put your light under a bushel. We are meant to shine brightly. Now, your reputation ought to speak well of your Savior. Think about that in your own life. What is your reputation? How salty are you? How bright are you? Does your life 
provide impact into the life, lives of, of those around you. We're challenged here. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And in the same way in Matthew 5.16, we see that let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. One thing I want to point out here is it's one thing to have an outward reputation or to have other people think of you in a certain way, but I want to challenge us at the deeper level, in your heart of hearts, at the deepest part of who you are and how you conduct your life. Are you salt and light there? Are you righteous there? Are you doing battle with the corruptions within your heart, which maybe only you know about. Are you doing battle at that level? It's not enough to be okay with secret sins and small corruptions that live within us and yet outside to present some sort of reputation that the world might look look at. At the deepest levels, are we pursuing righteousness in order to honor God? Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. None of us are. We know that. That's obvious. We're going to fail. We're going to sin. We, we do this repeatedly over and over again. However, are we militant against those sins and corruptions within us? Are we fighting? Are we inviting others into our lives uh, to help us fight? It's at that level that we will be salt and light. One pastor said that salt is about our influence and light is about our visibility. How are we influencing those around us and how are we seen by those around us? So then, church, you are salt and light. As we move along, I want to get a little bit more practical and say, well, what does this mean? And so the question now is, given that we are salt and light, how then should we live? All right, our next point is that in order for us to live this out, we must be distinct from the world. Now, there's two dangers that we must avoid as the church. We must avoid assimilation, and we must also avoid retreat. This is where the church lives. We don't assimilate and we don't retreat. First, we want to avoid assimilation. So Jesus prayed in John 15, 19. He says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We must remain distinct. Jesus has chosen the church out of the world. So what is assimilation? What does that word look like? What does that word mean? Well, it's essentially the process of integrating or adapting to the customs, beliefs, values, behaviors, and norms of a surrounding culture or group. And Maybe you've joined a a new team at work, or you got a new job, or you went to a new school. In all those situations, there's obviously going to be some element of assimilation. Those cultures or those groups are going to want to have you adopt their customs, beliefs, values, behaviors, and norms. And as social creatures, it's very difficult for us to not conform to those norms. It's very easy for us to want to fit in. And so we often adapt, almost instinctively. But we must be careful. Unless there is deliberate awareness of this influence, and unless there is a clear alternative to stand on, none of us would ever stand a chance of not assimilating into the ways of the world. Now, there's always people who are 
we'll call them odd birds or, uh, or uh, individuals who just march to the beat of their own drum. And maybe that's you. God bless you. But, but for most of us, we tend to want to adopt the culture that we find ourselves within. We just have to be careful about that. There must be deliberate awareness about that pressure and that influence if we're to stand a chance of not assimilating. The way you do this is, again, by being properly moored to the customs, beliefs, values, behaviors, and norms of Scripture, of the way that God has set up the world. So, Jesus says that he's called us out of the world. Let's take a little look at what he's referring to when he says, uh, I have uh, chosen you out of the world. So my definition, a definition broadly speaking of the world might be this. The world is the system of this current age characterized by empty values, perverted desires, ruled by corrupt principalities that is destined to pass away. Now, I know that's a heavy, uh, condemning view of the world. And I want to be careful because that, that refers to the system of the world. That does not mean that everything that we see in outside of the church or, or in the world around us um, is, is, uh, falls under that. Nevertheless, the the system that Scripture talks about uh, is precisely that. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. My definition is not too far off from Scripture, so I feel comfortable about that. If it was... John, John said it, so I feel like I can, I can say it. Um, there is a condemning element of the system of the world. Nevertheless, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that amazing? This world which has turned its back on God and and has grown increasingly corrupt and has rejected God and said, nah, we'll find a better way. That world, God has sent his son to redeem. That world, God loves. That world, we are called to be distinct from in some ways, but in not every way. So, secondly, what is the church? Who are we? We talked about the world. Who is the church? Well, the church just essentially means assembly. It's a gathering of uh, believers. It's also the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. We, as the church, are the body of Christ. And one commentator has said that the church is a number of the children of men called out of the world, set apart from it, and dedicated to Christ. So if you're hearing, there's this element of a system of the world that the church has been called out of, set apart from. And we have to maintain that in our minds. There is an element of distinctness that Christians must maintain. Again, I want to be careful here because there is a danger that this would turn into something along the lines of mere moralism. How are we different from the world? Uh, We uh, don't smoke cigarettes. That that just came to my mind. I don't know why I chose that. But... but, uh, it's just this kind of a silly example. Like, is that what we're talking about? We don't smoke cigarettes, so we're different from the world? No. That's not what we're talking about. This is not mere moralism. There is a moral element to this. But instead, we reject the world and its ways on account of a holy fear of God, 
love for Christ, love for his commandments, the result of transformed desires, and a renewed mind. All of these things factor into why we would be distinct from the world. It's not mere moralism, and we must be very careful not to fall into that. So there, there is a, a challenge for you that you would develop somewhat of a special discernment. What do you say yes to? What is it okay to enjoy? What is it okay to celebrate? And what must you abstain from? How do you live that, how do you thread that needle in a way that honors God? That can be very challenging. We must cultivate a special discernment. And you know what? Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we don't know how to thread that needle, so we need each other. We need scripture. We, we need help. But we must pursue that, that special discernment so that we know how to remain distinct in this world. Secondly, we must have a superior passion. So a, a special discernment and a superior passion for God's purposes and his promises and his plans than we do for what the world is offering. When it becomes clear that we are called to distinction from some element of the world, and yet it is still alluring. How do we fight that? In order to fight that, because by the way, the world is not just handing out rancid meat and saying, hey, come, come take what we have. No, they're making delectable meals and, they'll say, and, and, they, and they're saying, come, eat. And so, how can we resist when the pull, both from within and from without, is so strong? We must have a superior passion for what God says is true. And we must cultivate that so that when tempted, we are able to stand and trust that what God has promised is superior, in fact is. So you must be distinct from the world. Next, though, you must be engaged with the world. So we talked about those two dangers of assimilation on the one hand and retreat on the other. Now, the church must avoid retreat. And so Jesus prayed, not too long after he prayed John 15, that he had taken us out of the world. He then prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So we have been called out of the world's system, and yet we're not taken completely out. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, that means make them holy, lead them to righteousness so that they would be distinct and bright. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, if we're not careful, this can sound like a contradiction. Did he take us out of the world or did he send us in? I don't know. As we discern that, he has made us distinct from the system of the world and yet physically left us present in the world so that we would have that impact and that effect on those who remain. We must avoid retreat. And I want to challenge us in terms of our view of the church. Sometimes we think, if, when you hear church, you think of building, something's off. This is an assembly. This is a gathering of believers. But, but the building is not the point. The point is that we would be built up to be salt and to be light. And yes, there is great comfort in coming together and working with each other and confessing our sins one to another and finding comfort and fellowship and worshiping God. This ought to be a delightful assembly. And yet it is also meant to equip us to go be salt and light in the world. 
Another point that I want to make is to say, as we look at the world, it can often be challenging for us to say they, them, out there, and we essentially make them an enemy, the enemy. And I want to urge you to resist that when you see that in this crazy world, which I said I wasn't going to say that, (laughs) but it sure can be. And when you look at that, do you have compassion for the lost? Good. Good. Praise God. We should all say yes. That's what, that's what we're working toward, is that we would maintain compassion for the lost. The goal is not the destruction of the world, but for their restoration. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You see that? There's a place for correcting your opponent with gentleness. That's interesting. Hmm. Does anybody do that well? I don't feel like anybody really does that well. Who corrects their opponents with gentleness? I I don't think we have a model for that in our culture. Could we be that model? I think we could be. I think we should be. So this is a great challenge for us. But God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. They're captured. They're captured. They're lost. They're unmoored. Why are we seeking their destruction? Leave that to God. He'll do that. He's going to do that. We know that. Yet, he's called us to lead with gentleness and correct when needed. So we want to be encouraged to point people to the gospel. Now, there may be times where we have to stand up and fight. We take a stance on something and we say, no, we're, we're, we're not going to compromise on this. And you know what? The world may hate us. They may uh, persecute us, as Scott even read at the end of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We may have to stand up and fight. We may have to, as 2 Corinthians 10 says, destroy strongholds. We may have to stand firmly and unashamedly for the word of God. Nevertheless, we must have compassion for the lost Another element when it comes to being engaged with the world that I hope is an encouragement to you is that God uses the ordinary Christian. When he says you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's talking to ordinary people. We tend to think that God is only going to use the strong, the mighty, the big, these massive uh, displays of the church's power or this, that, or the other thing. No, he's going to use you. He's going to use you in very ordinary ways. That ought to be a comfort. We don't need to measure up in these impressive ways. We just need to pursue righteousness. Also, God works profoundly in in the mundane. You may have a neighbor who sees how you treat your spouse or your family. That may speak to them more than a Billy Graham crusade could have spoken to them. That's what I'm talking about. God works in the mundane. He he works in ordinary ways. That should be an encouragement to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish... Sorry, 
Uh, in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is accessible. This kind of life, having influence and visibility in our culture, it's accessible to you. It's accessible to me. It's accessible to the church locally. It's accessible to the church globally. God uses the weak to shame the strong. And so hopefully it's an encouragement for you to just focus on being faithful. Root out sin in your life wherever you might find it. Be militant against it. Love your neighbor. Come to church. Love your brother or sister. Invest in their lives. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just do those things. God will use you. God uses the ordinary Christian. Sometimes the most powerful evangelism tool is a clear knowledge of the gospel backed by a righteous life, both word and deed. I found one quote that I just thought was a little little helpful that I want to read to us. And it just kind of refers to a practical approach of how to have impact in the world and to engage in the world. This, this writer says this, engage and befriend those who don't know the Lord, know what's going on, know what people's needs are, eat with non-Christians, invite them over, go to a game or a concert or a movie with them, make real friends with the people in this world, invest yourself in these friendships authentically. He says, trust me, you'll be able to talk to many, many more people who need Jesus that way. You might begin to understand them. You might have things in common. You may even start to love them for who they are. Let that be a challenge that you would love those who are unmoored. I had an opportunity to go down to a wedding in Mexico a couple weeks ago. It wasn't a great trip. I was sick. It was, a pretty bad, it was a pretty bad trip, actually. I didn't even go to the wedding. Um, it was that bad. But on my way to the hotel from the airport, my Uber driver picked me up, and his name's Henry, and we had, you know, probably a 15, 20-minute ride to the hotel. And I just just started talking to the guy. I had a genuine interest in him. I, you know, he didn't speak English uh, uh, super well. Uh, nevertheless, um, he spoke enough for us to have a, a good conversation. And, and uh, we started talking about uh, how he was learning English. And I tried a, a few uh, Spanish phrases on him and was kind of connecting with him um, uh, about that. And, um, and after... I felt like there was just a, a good communication going on with him. I noticed he had a cross that was hanging from his mirror, and I just, I just said, uh, are you a Christian? Yeah, I just felt like that was an opportunity to kind of to move the conversation in that direction, and, and he didn't say anything. And I thought, okay, either he doesn't know how to respond or he doesn't want to respond. So I said, I just asked him again. So I, I see the cross up there. Are, are, you, are you a Christian? He says, no, no, it's my wife. I said, oh, okay. I said, I said what, do you th- what do you think about that? And he says, I have my doubts. I said, I said oh, okay. Um, and uh, he, I said, what are some of those doubts? And he says, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like things are going well for me. Uh, it seems like I can't really get ahead. Um, he said, you know, and he started to get vulnerable. He said, you know, I, I, I go through life and I, um, I try to smile. Um, you know, I try, I try to put on a smile, but, but I'm, not, I'm not happy. My son died. And he had a lot of things in his heart that kept him from God. And, and I, I just encouraged him. I said, you know, in those times, God wants you to look to him, not run from him. 
And I just kind of encouraged him a, a, a bit about what it means to draw near to God. And by the end of our conversation, I had you know, encouraged him to read the Gospel of John and, and kind of pointed him in, in that direction. Um, but uh, I, I tell that story just to say that, you know, in a casual engagement with somebody where I genuinely was interested in this guy, it led to a, a, a conversation about the Lord. That's it. That's all, that's all we're talking about. You could pray for Henry. Um, I pray for him still. Pray for him. So we must be challenged to be engaged with those in the world. And then, lastly, you must show the world the way. I've said this before, but the world needs the church. Again, whether they know it or not, the world needs the church. The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. The world needs the church because we alone point them to the one who takes away the sins of the world. Who else is doing that? 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the truth is a person. The church knows the truth and points the world to the truth. The truth is a person. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus pointed the world to himself and we also ought to point Jesus to the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting up to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, we may need to speak of the coming judgment. We may need to speak of the ills of this world. We may need to speak of sin and judgment, and that may not be fun, but the truth of Jesus is only going to be good news if we also include the bad news. The world must speak honestly about where it stands before God, and we must point them to the Lord Jesus as the answer. Acts 17 says, The former times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. The world needs the church. The world needs you. The world needs to be shown the way. So finally, what would it look like if we labored more diligently to increase our influence more deeply and to shine more brightly uh, as we remain in the world? You know, maybe we would see a preoccupation with personal holiness. Maybe we would see people become Christians. We'd see more baptisms. We'd, we'd have individuals sharing more requests about people they are impacting and, and, uh, and uh, loving and, and praying for. We would see a tangible impact on the world around us. We might even see persecution. Nevertheless, we are called to act as salt and light. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So then, labor to influence others more deeply and to shine more brightly before them. View church as an opportunity to come and refresh your soul from the challenge of the week, but also view church as an opportunity for you to grow and refine your ability to have greater impact in the world around us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word, which reminds us of our need for you. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that we have an important part to play in what you're doing in reconciling the world to yourself. Thank you, God, that we know that if we simply point people to you, that you will take care of the rest. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is sanctifying each of us so that we might have greater influence and shine more brightly in the world. Help us to do that as we seek to honor you with our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning is Communion Sunday. And again, communion is a great blessing to us from the Lord because it is a reminder and we need reminders. So I would encourage you as we move into this time that you would reflect on the weightiness of the death of Christ and on the hope of his soon return. Let me read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, as you may know, we, uh, we have some tables around the worship center. Take your time. When you're ready, approach the tables, collect the bread and the cup. You can return to your seat. And again, when you're ready, go ahead and take the Lord's Supper on your own.